Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for cult stories, education, and experiences. Don't be culty, huns. Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros, it's finally time. It is the first episode of our dive into Scientology, and it is a really good episode. I'm actually really excited for you to listen to this because we get into the similarities of Scientology and MLM and how Scientology kind of has its own MLM-y thing going on and the connections. If you know my story, and you've been around here for a long time, you know that it was Mike and Leah and Scientology that snapped me out of it, that made me realize, oh my God, I'm in a cult. And through my own deconstruction, I got to meet Mike and Leah and be on their show. And Mike came on this show last year. And I've always wanted to dive into Scientology and talk to other people who have been in and go down these different rabbit holes and tell these different stories because it is so unbelievably wild. So after our education into evangelicalism and all of the wild non-denominational branches that we went through the last couple episodes, it's really interesting to see how Scientology is really, really similar. I also want to say thank you to our newest Patreon members, Angie Mann, Brooke, Marilyn Honig, and Melissa Anderson. It is so great to have you. Make sure you're taking advantage of all of the cool stuff and checking out all of our past episodes with all of our bonus content that's in the episodes. It's my own director's cut, so there's always a little bit extra in the Patreon episodes that don't make it out to the public episodes. If you are interested in joining the Patreon, we have a free tier as well as $5 and $10 tiers, and all of that is being revamped and we are adding an additional tier soon. I know I keep teasing it, I just haven't had the time to actually get it done but it's coming. Everything I'm promising, all of the fun stuff I've been promising that we've been working on, we're really, really hoping to get it up in January of 2024 and have everything running by then. But we all have lives and all kinds of other things going on besides this. And um, so we will get it done as soon as possible. There are not a ton of content warnings on this episode other than talking about Scientology and cults and all of the trauma that comes along with that. Enjoy this episode. We're just getting started. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. It is cult month. We are going deeper into some stories that maybe we don't necessarily hear all the time. And to add to the conversation about the Church of Scientology, I want to welcome to the show, I'm just going to call you Apostate Alex. Does that work? (laughs) Hi. Yeah, that works. That's my name. Hi. How's it going? (laughs) Great. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this. And let's talk about how MLM-like Scientology is and how it's, you know, really focused on making loads of money. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what it is at the end of the day. Yeah, that was something that 
when I was looking into the Church of Scientology, that like sort of caught my eye about like, wait a second, you have to keep buying these books, these books and these books. And I always sort of saw that as one of the bigger scams in Scientology. It's very reminiscent of like the Amway tool scam, where you have to buy all this extra stuff to like maintain everything. That's how you cross the bridge. That's how you get across the bridge, right? So it's very mlm -y. Most religions sell salvation. Scientology sells books. So we're going <laughs> to get into it because you were one of these booksellers. Yeah, that's right. So I was the director of public book sales at the Church of Scientology in London. So I was responsible for all of the sales of books at the London organization, the London Church and Malta, strangely, was one of my territories. But yeah, in the UK, you have St. Hill, which is the headquarters of Scientology down in Sussex. And at the time, the only other kind of, they call it an ideal organization, which means it's a very lush, multi-million dollar building. It's been refurbished and it's lovely. The only one of those that existed that wasn't St. Hill was London. And that's where I worked. So I was in charge of all the book sales. They've now expanded and there, there's Birmingham and I think Manchester is opening soon. But at the time, yeah, it was pretty a pretty important job. Wow. Okay. So for anybody listening who's just sort of heard Scientology in passing or hasn't really gone down the rabbit hole, give me like a three minute elevator pitch of what Scientology is so that we can all be on the same page. Do you want me to give you the answer I would have given in Scientology or do you want me to give you the truth? <laughs> <laughs> you can give both if you'd like. Yeah. If you were to ask an actual Scientologist what is Scientology? You know, the question you just asked, they would find it really hard to actually give you an answer because of a multitude of reasons. And they would always encourage you to go and find out for yourself, right? Go and buy a book, read a book, you know, do a course and find out for yourself what it is. But they never actually answer the question. Now I'm out with Scientology, I can answer the question a little bit easier. Scientology is something that a guy called Elwin Hubbard came up with. He was a failed science fiction writer in the 50s. And he basically started off by writing a book called Dianetics, which was meant to be the modern science of mental health, which is based on no science, no evidence and nothing whatsoever of any credence. And basically came up with this way of coming to an enlightened state that they call the state of clear, which is all about kind of living a better, healthier, happier life by applying different tools and techniques that comprise of what Scientology is. But ultimately, it actually does more harm than good because of the psychoanalysis, the hypnotism, the other methods that are involved in the Scientology process means it ends up being a very controlling, coercive group that manipulates people and manipulates your way of thinking. And it actually changes the way your brain processes information. And that's why it has such long lasting, damaging effects for people individually in reality, its application actually tears families apart through a policy called disconnection. It causes people to have forced abortions. It traffics children around the world to work for their sea organization. It causes people immense emotional and financial and mental distress. I could go on. Every time I hear about it, even though I know about it, it's still, I'm just speechless and floored and so confused as to how this is able to call itself a church. One thing I always like to point out as well is if you are a US taxpayer, you are subsidizing this. The Church of Scientology is IRS tax exempt. 
and it has been since 1993. It is considered a religion in the United States and therefore has certain protections under the First Amendment. It is not considered a charity here in the UK, so they don't get quite the same privileges. But yes, in the US, it gets away with a lot of the stuff it does, and it is subsidised by any US taxpayers that are currently listening. How does that make you feel? (laughs) (laughs) Just like gross. It makes me feel gross. You know, like we always try our best not to support scams and not to support MLMs and not to support these different things. But here you are. If you're paying taxes, you're inadvertently supporting the Church of Scientology by doing that. It's just it's not great. So let's talk about how old you were and where you were in your life when you decided to join the Church of Scientology. Sure. So I was a teenager when I joined Scientology. I was very much looking for answers to questions most people have when you're a teenager, trying to figure out who you are, where your place is in the world, what you know, where you belong, what your purpose is, what you're trying to do with life. So I was looking for those sorts of answers and open to anything, really. I saw a documentary on Scientology that featured John Sweeney. And in this documentary, Panorama, it was very clearly attacking Scientology and painting Scientology in a bad light because there's a very famous scene in which John Sweeney is yelling at Tommy Davis, the church spokesperson, saying, you were not there at the beginning of this interview. You know, and I saw that as an inquisitive teenager and kind of thought, this reporter here is obviously angry and has flipped out against Scientology. So I wonder if that means the whole report itself is truly unbiased or whether maybe this reporter is trying to make Scientology seem, you know, particularly bad because they've annoyed him, right? And I kind of have always believed you shouldn't believe everything you read in the media and take it 100% as truth. You should always try and find out for yourself whether you believe in what that says or whether you don't believe in it. You know, if you read a news article, you know, try and read a couple of news articles from different organizations, try and form an opinion yourself rather than just take it at face value. So I did a lot more research and, you know, read up on it and heard lots of negative reports about how Scientology tears families apart and, you know, does this, that and the other. But I also saw a lot of stuff on the Scientology website and the PR stuff that they put out there going, you know, we're often misunderstood and misinterpreted and people think we're this, but actually we're not. And I thought, well, look, why don't I go into the church and find out whether what the media is saying is true or whether it isn't, right? And I can decide for myself whether all of these reports are true and I can go and figure it out for myself or or not. And so I went in and did a personality test and was very critical. I gave the person who gave me the answers a very hard time. I was like, you believe in Xenu, you believe in disconnecting families and, you know, forced abortions and child trafficking, all these things I've read and heard about. You know, I asked all those questions. And the thing about Scientology is once you're in, you are literally trained to deflect and answer those questions in a way that makes you feel satisfied you have the answer, kind of like a politician, but worse. For example, I would ask about disconnection, right? Disconnection is this policy we know about where if someone is negative about Scientology and someone is a Scientologist, you're forced to disconnect from them, even if they're a family member and that tears families apart. When I asked about this, the answer I was given was, 
Well, no, look, there is a policy of disconnection, but it's often misunderstood. If you think about it like this, you know, you're in school and there's a group of people who are being horrible to you. They're bullying you, being mean to you. You would choose naturally to not go hang out with them after school. You wouldn't want to spend your time with them. And if you were given the choice, you would not have any connection or communication with them, right? And I was like, yeah, of course. And they go, okay, that's what disconnection is. If people are being nasty or mean or horrible to you, it's a formal way of separating yourself from them and saying, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. That's what disconnection is. It's not this big thing that people think it is of tearing families apart and so on. It's always a person's choice. But in reality, which I later then came on to understand, yes, it is a choice, but you only really have one choice. You disconnect from your family or you don't continue in Scientology anymore. And therefore, the only choice to, that you have really is to disconnect from your family. So that's the sort of question I used to, that I gave and the sort of answer they gave me back. And I think that's just a, a summation, I suppose, of how it started from me being quite critical, asking pointed questions and getting enough of a response that makes me think, okay, maybe there's a little bit of doubt there. Maybe this report that I watched or this thing that I read, maybe it isn't quite what it actually is and just planting these seeds of doubt in my mind over time added up and the next thing I know I'm a Scientologist. Wow because I was going to ask you like you're saying you're watching the BBC documentary and you're asking these critical questions like you came in critical of this and they still convinced you to join like you came in knowing what they did and they still were like, no, you have it all wrong. That's not how it is, even though that's how it is. But they still were able to flip the script. That is fascinating. Yeah, because when you go in and you think, OK, I'm going to make my own mind up about this and not believe everything that I read online. They go, well, look, the, if you were to go to a Christian church, you know, you would if you want to learn about Christianity, you'd read the Bible. Right. So similar with Scientology, if you want to learn about Scientology, the best thing to do is read a book or do a course and find out for yourself. So why don't you do a life improvement course? The one that I did was called the Personal Efficiency Course. And it was you buy a book called The Problems of Work by Oren Hubbard. And then you basically it's like 30 or 40 pounds. I think they're about $50 now. But you get like a course pack and you basically read the book and answer questions based on the book to make sure you understand it. And there's kind of practical tools and tips and things you can apply in your life to help you with a specific problem. And you commit to going in, you know, for a couple of hours, once a week or something to do this course. And I go, why don't you do this? Because then you learn what Scientology is because you're reading the book. You're trying it for yourself and it's only $50. So if you don't like it, you can walk away and go, thank you very much. You know, if you feel like you're being coerced or manipulated in some way, you know, you're there's no strings attached. You just come in, you try the course and then you find it. You know, that was how they sold it is very much like, well, look, if we are this big, manipulative, horrible thing, you would know because you're doing a course. And that's what Scientology really is, this course, this book that you're reading. And so try it and find out for yourself. And at the end of that course, you kind of go, yeah, well, it gave me some useful tips and tricks and I didn't feel coerced or controlled or manipulated in any way. I voluntarily went in for a couple of hours each week and I enjoyed it. And so, yeah, I'll do another one. Right. And suddenly you, you start building this picture in your head of like, well, all of these terrible stories I've heard in the press about how bad Scientology is. 
that doesn't match my experience in Scientology because I've been going once a week for the last six weeks and I've not been disconnected from anybody. But that's the problem is they don't, if you were to walk in on day one, they're not going to say, hi, welcome to Scientology. You need to disconnect from your family. (laughs) It's not how it works. It happens over time, right? I just, I feel like what you just described is the human equivalent of a game of three card Monty, right? They're like, take a class, pick a card. It's so easy. Watch the little bean. You're going to find it. You're going to double your money. You pick the right card. You take the right class. You double your money. You go, that wasn't so bad. Like, you want to play another round? And you're like, sure. And that's the round you're like, oh, fuck. I just doubled down on something I was not prepared for. Like, I mean, that's literally what it seems like. It takes longer than two games, but it really is kind of this, you're deceiving yourself because you're really believing what they're telling you, despite your experience. Yeah, that is such a good analogy. That is 100% the case. And that's the thing I think a lot of people don't understand about Scientology and cults and coercive groups is that there has to be something good in it for people to join, right? Right. If you walked into a church and they said from the offset, hey, we're going to ruin your life and (laughs) put you into financial ruin, obviously no one's going to join. So they're very smart and intelligent in the way that they do what they do. And even if you're critically minded, they are still able to get in there and get you. And that's the thing a lot of people don't realize. People think, oh, you must have been so stupid to join a cult even when you knew all of these manipulative stories and bad press and all of this. Well, no, honestly, they have an answer to everything. They manipulate people just in their existence. And when you think about that's how they operate, of course, they're going to be able to manipulate even the most critical minded person. I mean, they don't encourage you to like seek out other sources, but that they have sort of this, oh yeah, check it out, read a book. How else are you going to learn sort of attitude, like very laissez-faire about it. And then that's, I mean, that's how they get you. That's obviously how they get you because I agree. You're not stupid or ignorant or anything. When you join these, you're vulnerable. And the same thing with MLMs, you know, like there's something about something that brought you there. Maybe it's the face scrubber you really like, or maybe it's a shirt you really wanted to get or a bag or something. And that's how you, it's the gateway drug into all of these is this one little thing that seems so innocuous and so innocent and so like, oh, I can read a book. Oh, I can try a lipstick. It's nothing. And then all of a sudden you look around one day and you're like, how did I get here? In Scientology, it's very much like that. But instead of being the T-shirt or the lipstick or whatever, it's what they call your ruin, right? When you go into a church of Scientology, the goal is to find your ruin, the thing that's ruining your life, right? The thing that you want to change the most, that you don't like about yourself, a a secret or an anxiety or something, you know, maybe you don't have confidence or maybe you are you know, have marital problems or something like that that you want to change in your life and make better. That is the t-shirt, the handbag, whatever, because that is what they claim they can fix. And then they hang that over you and go, well, you know, is it worth the risk? I remember having many of of these conversations with people because I, you know, became the director of public book sales. So it was very much like, well, look, you just told me about how, you know, you have low confidence issues, for example, well, how important is that for you to change? Is it not worth the risk? Yeah, there's this stuff that people say about how bad Scientology is. But look, here's a course that's only $50. You read the book and you try it. 
And, you know, even if those things are true, like, is it not worth risking $50? If you don't like it, then great, you can walk away and you can not, you know, you not come back. But it's a really big problem for you, this confidence thing. So why not try it? Like, is it not worth the $50 risk? That's the sort of level of manipulation that was used in Scientology and currently still is to get people in. It's very interesting that they call it your ruin, mm-hmm. that it's the thing that you're there to fix in an MLM, because the thing we're there to fix is, you know, like our finances or our community or whatever. We call it our why. It's the reason we're there. So it's interesting that on Scientology, it's your ruin. And in an MLM, they try to spin that positive, And it's the reason. And so when you leave, like, say your why is your kids, right? I joined this to have enough money to put my daughter through dance lessons and my son through karate, right? And then you go, I don't think this works out for me. They go, you don't care about your kids? You don't want to be a better mom and put your kids in dance and karate? It's not what you want to do? I thought that's why you joined. So again, it's the same thing. Like you're describing this ruin. And I wonder how many people listening were like, oh my God, it's the why. But it's like evil, sinister why. It's like bizarro why. Yeah. <laughs> and the equivalent to the why, I think also is what's called a purpose. In Scientology, it's all about what's your purpose, your purpose in life, right? Yeah. And when they get you to join staff, your purpose, they, for me particularly, is very much like, well, look, you want to help people, right? And ultimately, everyone's purpose in life is to help others. And, you know, if you believe Scientology helps other people, it helped you, right? Oh, yeah, it helped me with this. Okay, great. Well, have you seen it help others? Yeah, I've seen people walk in and, you know, be happier and whatever. Okay, great. So why wouldn't you want to try and get Scientology to as many people as possible because you agree that it helps people. So why wouldn't you? They basically sit you down and go, well, look, if you don't join staff, if you don't sign the one billion year seal contract, you're a dick because you don't want to help people, right? Why wouldn't you want to help people? It's a guilt trip, but it's all around your purpose and your ruin, which are basically the positive and negative of, of the why, like you mentioned. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the flow knit high rise boyfriend jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester, and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claims standard-approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect, effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. 
Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet, and they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. It's so interesting. I mean, it's cult speak, right? Like in one cult, it's this and one cult, it's that potato, potato. It's the same. <laughs> so you were the director of public books. So you were in charge of all of the booksellers, which are called the field staff members or the FSM, right? Am I still right? Kind of. <laughs> kind of. So I was the director of public book sales. So I was in charge of all the sales of books in London and Malta, strangely. And underneath me in my department, I was the head of a department, we would then have booksellers who are staff members that work for the church. And then you have a- another section, which is called field staff members. So field staff members are parishioners. They're Scientologists who are paying public. They buy a book and read it. They're doing auditing, whatever it is. They're doing, they're public Scientologists and they are encouraged to go out and spread the word, right? And get more people to join Scientology. So they would come out and sell books, for example, with us every week. And they would be considered field staff members. They're not, you know, contracted staff members in a normal sense, but they're called FSMs. Yeah, they're sort of volunteers that want to help in the mission of spreading Scientology. And what is the benefit to them for taking on that position? So this is where it starts getting a bit MLM-y because <laughs> if you are a field staff member, you get 10% of any sales made by... So for example, if you were to recruit someone into Scientology and then they would spend $10,000 on a package of auditing or whatever it may be, you as a field staff member that introduce them get 10%. So there's a financial incentive of, you know, great. But ultimately... The real reason you do it is not for money. It's because you think this is the best way to help people. And you think that by getting people into Scientology, it's solving their problems and it's helping the world. And yeah, great. You get a little bit of a financial incentive too. But ultimately, it's because you want to help people and you think this is the way to help people. Are those financial incentives, which I mean, $1,000 off a $10,000 sale, I mean, that's pretty decent commission, even though 10% is not great. Are they now then turning around and using that $1,000 to just invest in more books? 
and just keep the money within the system? Probably. <laughs> it's not like it's not like anyone would ever get, you know, cash out, get a check from the church. Thank you. I'll take my commission in cash. Thank you very much. No, they would more than likely use that for their own spiritual services. Books, auditing services, things like that. OK, yeah, that's what I figured. So it's I mean, it is kind of MLM in the same way as like I'm just doing it for the discount. Like the more people I bring into Scientology, the more money I can make to put towards my next course to get up the bridge. Exactly. Get closer to becoming clear. Exactly. And the more people you help, the more kudos you get. You know, there are different competitions and awards and things and medals and trophies you can get for, you know, getting recognition for bringing more people into Scientology. Like, oh, my God, you did a great job. You managed to sign someone up to staff like you managed to get someone off the street to start a course and change their life around and join Scientology staff. And now they signed a 1 billion year seal contract. You know, what a great story of success. Well done. Here's a medal. Here's a trophy. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It's an ego stroke as well. Okay. So also when you're a bookseller, are you kind of like that person's plug for the whole thing? Like if you want to buy more books, do you go back to that same person or does it really not matter? So the way Scientology orgs work is a bit strange, kind of, yes, but also kind of no. So director of public book sales is my job. So my job was exclusively getting new people into Scientology, hence the public book sales. Um, So my statistic was number of books sold to raw public being people who haven't done anything in Scientology before. Okay. There was another statistic, which is general book sales, which is all books sold to even existing members of Scientology. And that was a different post and that was someone different. But ultimately, everyone's job is to help people, you know, go up the bridge and they call it a reg cycle, which means like a sales cycle, basically. And so, yeah, if I was to introduce someone to Scientology by selling them a book, it would be someone else's job to pick them up after they've bought the book and try and get them onto another service. But if they have a good relationship with me, because I'm the one that introduced them, then yeah, I would be expected to go in and help in that recruitment cycle to try and get them, you know, to buy their next service or the next package or their next book. Wow, that's very interesting. So the public books and the field staff are basically for new members and new recruits and just growing Scientology. Yeah, field the field staff members in that commission work on new and existing Scientologists. If someone had been in Scientology for however long and then they've kind of fallen off church lines for a couple of years and they'd kind of forgotten about it, moved on with their life, a field staff member might be encouraged to give them a call and go, Hey, I've noticed I haven't seen you around the org that much recently. You know, what's going on? Why don't you come back in and, you know, We'll have a coffee and see if you've got an upset or something. Field staff members do that recovery process as well as, yes, yeah, selling books and getting new people into Scientology. I mean, it's really fascinating because it's like I know a lot of the basics, but a lot of these like smaller specific things is just very interesting knowing and talking to you with the knowledge that I already have and like being able to really like fine tune some of these odd things that happen. Can we talk about the difference between selling books and then like selling pamphlets? Yeah, so to give a bit of context, I suppose, backstory, Scientology is very statistic heavy, right? It's very focused on numbers. So there's a staff member 
you are under immense pressure to perform. Every staff member in an organisation has at least one statistic by which they are judged, whether you're cleaning toilets your you know your statistic might be number of toilets cleaned or whether you are selling books like i was my statistic was mbs raw number of books sold to raw public there were other stats that i was responsible for but that was the main one by which my performance is judged now when i say my performance is judged it's not just from a work perspective like you would in any normal job like well done your statistics are up this week there is a very precise formula that Elon hubbard wrote of how to approach your job every week based on what your statistic did the previous week. So you plot your weekly stats on a graph and if they go like up quite sharply, then you do one thing. If they only go up a little bit, you do another thing. If they go down and so on. So because of that, you have to follow these the guidelines, almost this policy on how to perform based on what your stats are doing. And if you are performing poorly, if your stats crash, if your stats are down each week, then you are in effectively trouble, right, with ethics. So you might have to do some sort of punishment. Your pay might be cut or you might be put on what's called the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, which is where you're forced to dig ditches and clean things and, you know, your food might be cut or your accommodation or whatever situation you're in like horrible it's like a prison hard labor camp type north korea deal so you are under immense pressure for your stats to always be up because it's not just well done your stats are up it's like you don't want your stats to be down because you're in trouble if they are so this all ties into the answer of your question of books versus pamphlets my stat was any book sold to a raw public counted as one so if I met someone on the street and I sold them Dianetics for £13 or $15 or whatever, that's one book sold to that raw public. As soon as they bought that book, they are no longer raw. So if they then buy another book, then that's someone else's stat because they're no longer a raw public because they've already bought a book. Okay. So my job would be to try and get the most number of books sold to raw public. So we had these little pamphlets and this is kind of, we weren't really supposed to do it, but you did because you had to. And you know, a pamphlet might be, you know, two or three pounds or something. And it's just like a little leaflet about whatever topic about communication or marriage or whatever. And I could go, well, look, if you've got 10 pounds, I'll sell you five little booklets. And then I get five books sold. Whereas if I was to sell Dianetics, which was like the same price, I would only get one book sold. So if it would be the day before the stats are counted, because stats are counted every Thursday at 2 p.m., don't ask why. If it came to a Wednesday night and my stats were down, I would phone up all my friends and go, hey, have you got a tenner? Because I need to sell you five books. But actually, they're just little pamphlets. And it's a stat push because you need to have your stats up. Because if I didn't get my stats up, I'd be in trouble the next morning. This is MLM. This is PV. This is Scientology's version of PV. This is Scientology's version of end of the month, except it's end of the week. Yeah. You have to do it at the end of every single week. MLM does this at the end of the month. I need to sell 10 lipsticks. I need to do this. Calling up friends saying, hey, can you buy some from me? I'll buy something from you. I need to do this. Did you ever buy things for yourself like as a, a fake person? Did you ever make ghost accounts? That's what we call it in MLM <laughs> to be able to hit your numbers. No, I didn't do that. But I'm sure I would have resorted to that if I got desperate. But I definitely did call up friends and just say, hey, can you do me a favor and, you know, just buy a load of books? And they go, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. And I actually spoke to one of these friends recently 
who bought a couple of books from me 10 years ago and still to this day receives letters and leaflets in the post from Scientology trying to get them to sign up and buy more books from them. I always joke like when people are like, ooh, I want to get revenge on someone. I'm going to send them a glitter bomb. I'm like, just sign them up for Scientology. Done. <laughs> it's easier. It's cheap. It's free. Like done. <laughs> They're on a list for life now, buddy. I mean, don't really actually. That's horrible. Don't do that. But that's a joke I make sometimes. <laughs> Once you're on Scientology's mailing list, you don't get off. Yeah, yeah. Because I know about that. In fact, I was telling you one of the very first memories I have of like kind of learning about Scientology was when I was living in LA and I was doing hair and I lived on the West side. And so I had a lot of actors and actresses who would sit in my chair and get haircuts for new headshots and things. And I would ask them questions because I was just fascinated by the entire industry. And a lot of them would tell me about Scientology, how they had taken acting classes in the back of these like industry rags going, I thought it was an acting class and it was a Scientology class. And one, this girl talked about how she went with her friend and they're like, let's do this together. We're both actresses. I don't want to go in there alone. I'm scared. Let's go together out of morbid curiosity too. And immediately once walking, I believe it was a celebrity center, immediately once coming into the lobby, were separated and did not see each other for hours on end. They said it was one of the most terrifying experiences of their life. And they just did it like as a joke and that they still get emails and letters in the mail and phone calls and all kinds of things from Scientology. And they just went to that one free acting class. Yeah. Do you want to know why that is? Why they were split up? Yes. Tell me. So if you want to sell someone a book in Scientology, you need to find out their ruin, right? And if you go in with your friend and you take a tour around the public information center, cool, great. You know, they'll let you just watch the videos and walk around, do your own thing. But if one of you shows even the slightest interest or asks a question, well, how am I going to get you to tell me the thing that's ruining your life and upsetting you and be really open and vulnerable with me if you've got your friend with you? So, of course, I'm going to try and split you apart so that I can really understand what help this person really needs in their life. It's actually policy. I have the policy in front of me here for those Scientology nerds. is a lecture, 13th May 1959, called the second lecture on clearing methodology, Aaron Hubbard talks about how to sell books. And he says, word for word, this is a quote, you have to be willing to invade privacy very definitely, end quote. That's because in order to sell a book, you have to understand what's ruining their life because you have to present Scientology and Dianetics as a solution to that. You have to invade privacy, right? It's a horrible thing to do to someone. But when you're in that seat as a Scientologist, as a salesperson, you don't think you're manipulating someone. You don't think it's horrible. You don't realize what you're doing is bad. You genuinely believe that you are helping this person. And by getting them to be vulnerable and open up and tell me what your problem is in life, well, then I, you will be susceptible to hearing about Scientology and trying it. And therefore I can help you. So it's a necessary evil. But you're not going to get someone in that state if they're with their friend because you need to get them to open up and be vulnerable. So, you, of course, they're going to split you up so that they can invade your privacy. That's the policy. Wow. This is literally why you never follow a cultist to a second location. <laughs> Just stay, stay in the first location. Don't split up. Don't look around by yourself. 
just stay together. Or just don't go in the first place. (laughs) Just don't go in the first place. Don't even have the morbid curiosity. Just listen to podcasts and watch SPTV. You'll figure it out on your own. You won't even have to do the reconnaissance on your own. Wow. It's very reminiscent of what we're taught in an MLM. And I'm thinking people are probably going to start nodding their heads here too. We are taught how to do that using social media where you're just, you know, you're monetizing your scroll by going down and knowing what your product or your service will help people with. First and foremost, every single MLM is going to help you with money. So if anyone's complaining about money, bingo, there's your in. But if you're complaining about your back pain or you're complaining about not having a cute outfit or you're complaining about anything, if your MLM can solve that problem, you're asked to reach out and be like, hey, hon, I've got the solution. I mean, it's so wild to me that you're telling me this and I have like an MLM equivalent I mean, it's the same thing, right? But it's so interesting that in Scientology, it's called this and an MLM, it's this other thing, but it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's just, they work. This is how they work. This is why they work. It is formulaic. Doesn't matter what it looks like. It just works. One thing to consider as well is that Scientology definitely fits the bill as an MLM, but in some ways it's it's worse because as much as I'm not trying to compare or invalidate anyone's experiences or whatever. MLMs, you know, are what they are. Scientology is very similar in many ways, but Scientology gets you on a spiritual level. That's what makes it different. Oh, yeah. You don't, you're not thinking about just your life and your family and whatever. You're thinking about, you know, the belief is you're an immortal spiritual being that has had many lives and will have many more. And Scientology is the thing that's going to help you on that spiritual level and there's nothing else that exists that, that can help you in that way so it's kind of like another level of manipulation and horribleness i suppose because you're not just thinking about your life you're thinking about your eternity right and scientology is the answer to that and when you hear about i mentioned earlier the sea organization that's like the monks and nuns of scientology you sign up your life to work for the church, you know, you're dedicating your life because you think it's the right thing to do and you live on church premises, you know, you're a really committed member. You sign a one billion year contract because you're not just committing this lifetime, but you're committing all of your future lives to Scientology. And that's because you genuinely believe this is the way to help humankind, to save humankind, right? Right. And that's what I mean. Is it's like another level. It's not just helping people, getting money, whatever. It's actually an eternal thing. You're talking millions of years of the cosmos, right. <laughs> of like eternity level, you know? When you think about it that way, taking a class isn't just taking a class. Like it's an investment in your eternity. It's I'm taking this class now, so I don't have to take it in the next billion years because I'm going to know it and I'm going to bring it with me. Like it really is this investment in the rest of your life because of the reincarnation aspect of Scientology. It's not like Christianity where you're just trying to get to heaven. You're in Scientology. You're trying to get to the next life so that you can get to the next life because you literally signed a contract for a billion years to keep this up. You sounded (laughs) just like a Scientology recruiter then. It's an investment for your (laughs) eternity. Like a hundred percent. That's the sort of thing we would say is like, look, you know, how many millions of lives have you had before this one that you haven't come across Scientology? Right. Well, now's your chance, right? How? Who knows how many more lifetimes you're going to have before you come across Scientology again? So this is your <laughs> one chance.
you got to hop on while it's going. This train is passing <laughs> by. You better run and hop on or you're going to miss it. You don't know when this train might come by again. Exactly. That's the FOMO of MLM too, right? Chew, fucking chew. <laughs> I know that we laugh because we're out and we are looking into the fishbowl that we've already been in and we already understand. But to just compare it and to just see it like side by side and to talk about it like this, it's just, it's, I, it's funny to me in, in a way that it might not be funny to other people, but it's just really funny to me. It's like blatantly obvious. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. So let's talk about being a recruiter for Scientology. Like how many people do you think, or do you know, how many people you are responsible in bringing into the fold? <laughs> there it is. I have, I know this is an audio thing, so you can't see, but I'm describing this. I have a folder of documents from my time in Scientology. And one of them is a commendation from for those Scientology nerds out there, the COCPLO UK, that stands for the Commanding Officer of the Continental Publications Liaison, basically the person who's in charge of all the book sales and promotion and all of this sort of stuff. I have a commendation from my time in Scientology from this person. It's a high up senior executive that works at the international level. It says here, I've got two commendations. One says, this is to commend Charlie and all the staff, Charlie was my boss, and all the staff that helped on producing an affluence and the highest number of books sold for over two years on weekending 15th of August. Getting books into the hands of the public is really vital to create expansion and changes in this society. Very well done. To create a new civilization, it takes volumes of books being sold. And then it has a quote from Owen Hubbard that says, books are the first line of dissemination and it says very well done continue <laughs> and then it's attached with the graph and there's another thing that just says uh, the above staff are highly commended for their hard work and dedication on the front of disseminating scientology <laughs> here we go here's some numbers two weeks ago they hit 74 nbs raw in a week that's number of books sold to a raw public which was a big affluence, but even better than this, that you've got the NBS raw into a new range. At the start of the year, we were averaging 20 to 30 books sold, and now we're pretty much over the 50 mark. What you're doing is vital for the future of Scientology, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, basically, we were selling 20 books a week. I got it up to 75 books a week, and there's a graph there that you can see yourself if you want to see the stats. Oh my God. Yeah. The highest book sold in a week was about 200. I mean, that I was responsible for. Even at 20 books a week, that's over a thousand books a year. And that's just the introductory package. And that's just London. And that's just London. Oh my God. Wow. And I know you threw out the number 10,000 earlier of, for a starter pack, but what's the average cost that someone spends when they join Scientology on books? Yeah, it's hard because most people will just buy one book, you know, £10, £20, whatever. There was a package we would sell for like the beginning basic books, which was, you know, £200 or something. Most people only spend, you know, $50 or whatever in the first instance, because if you, no one would join if you say, here, sign this, it's $10,000. It's very much like buy a book, it's $20, buy this course, it's $50, buy this. And then over time, then once you're used to studying Scientology, you've been in the orb a little bit, it'll be like, okay, let's get you up the bridge to total freedom, which is this kind of chart, this 
way that you're supposed to progress to spiritual enlightenment, basically. And once you start doing major auditing actions on that's where it starts costing a lot of money. So the purification rundown is the first thing you do on the bridge. And that costs, so last time I checked, it was like 1500 or 2000 pounds, something like that. And that's where it starts getting more and more expensive. How far did you get across the bridge? So it's hard because when you're on staff, you are working all the time. So you're meant to get your processing and auditing for free in return for the work that you do for the church. But in reality, you don't have the time to do that sort of bridge work. So I did a lot of auditing. I did a lot of training. I did a lot of specific auditing on very specific problems or things that were happening. I also did a lot of, they call it twinning. So there are people who are paying members, public members of Scientology that are learning how to become auditors, for example. And they would need a buddy to practice on. And you take it in turns to learn and teach each other how to deliver Scientology. So I did a lot of that. So it wasn't particularly specifically bridge work, but it was part of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I didn't get very far at the bridge at all because I was always working. And when I was in the course room, it was it was for specific things or helping others rather than doing my own bridge, you know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about auditing then, because that's, I think, a phenomenon that people are very curious about with Scientology, with the e-meter. And holding the cans and having these very personal, deep questions asked over and over again. This seems very scary to me. <laughs> I don't ever want to do it. So can you walk us through the process so that none of us have to have the morbid curiosity and do this on our own? Sure. So auditing is, they describe it as spiritual counseling. And as much as I don't like that description, because it's very much not like counseling, it is a fairly accurate depiction of what it's like. You sit down in a room with someone and you can do auditing with or without the e-meter. The e-meter is kind of the advanced level of Scientology. Like you can do auditing basic through like basically through Dianetics, which is the first book, the kind of very first thing was before the e-meter was even invented. So it's very much like asking pointed questions and talking through past traumatic experiences and so on. When the e-meter is involved, it's kind of like a lie detector. It works on all it does, in actual fact, is measure resistance. It's a resistance meter. You hold these two cans, it passes a very small electric current through your body. Uh, it doesn't hurt or anything like that. It's the same as a touchscreen phone. When you touch your phone screen, it, it completes the circuit through this small little current that runs through you. Same thing as that. And basically, the needle on the meter moves according to the resistance changes it, it, through the circuit, through your body. That's fact. That's what it does. A lie detector works in many ways and one of the things it picks up on is that so it's similar but where Scientology starts to get really kooky is when they explain the why behind the resistance changing they would say the resistance changes due to your thoughts or your emotions you know if you ask a question and the needle moves at the end of the question or you've thought about something there and they would ask what is that tell me what you were just thinking about that is where it's a bit kooky because there's no scientific proof that your thoughts change the resistance to the electric current that's running through your body. So the e-meter is used to help locate past experiences and trauma and perhaps things you don't want to talk about. And the idea is like a counseling session, you talk it through and you go earlier, similar, you talk through different past bad experiences. And by doing that process, it makes you feel better about it. And you walk away thinking, oh, great, that was really good. I don't feel stressed or worried about that anymore because I talked it through. 
but in reality it's a very like specific methodical way of approaching someone's spiritual enlightenment i suppose of like you cannot leave the room until you're feeling better about something so the auditor will sit by the door for example and you can't leave until you're feeling happy and feeling better which is where it's not like counseling because in counseling you're the one in control and you decide what you want to talk about and you work through the challenges whereas in scientology it's like no this is the process so this is what we're doing the auditor is in charge and we will continue until we reach the end phenomena which is the you know ideal goal that you're trying to achieve with that session it's just, it just seems like interrogation yeah there's a thing called a sec check a security check which is just like interrogation that's where they sit you down and they ask you very strange very personal very pointed questions i will never forget a moment when i was in london org and i was a bit upset about a few things and i was sat down in a room and i was asked have you ever masturbated when was the last time you masturbated how long did you masturbate for what did you think about did you watch porn you know, tell me how it felt when you were masturbating. These really personal questions, because they're trying to get you to confess to something that they considered was not ethical. And by doing that, you'll feel better about yourself. But in reality, I couldn't leave the room until I confessed to what I'd done wrong. The guy literally put his hand on the door handle. I, I physically wasn't able to leave the room until I confessed. And that's where it starts becoming really harmful and horrible and manipulative. Right. You mentioned the RPF earlier. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So the RPF is Scientology's punishment, hard labor camp, basically. If you are in the C organization and you have done wrong, your stats are down or whatever reason, there are different kind of project forces in Scientology. There's the Estates Project Force, which is the kind of training that you do when you first join the C organization. And then there's the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force. And the idea is that you spend long hours in constant interrogations with other members, staff members who are in trouble. And you do a lot of hard manual labor and you don't get to sleep in a proper bed. You are kept separated from all the other staff members. You're not allowed to communicate to anybody else who isn't on the RPF with you. And there was a thing in the int base, which is over in California, that was called the hole, which Mike Grinder has talked about being in before. And that was the kind of worst of the RPF. Now, my understanding is that no longer exists because of the media and press attention on it, the RPF has now officially been disbanded. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist in some form under a different name somewhere else. Right. It's actually against policy to change what Elwin Hubbard said or wrote. So if Elwin Hubbard said, you have to do this, you cannot change that. You can't do, you know, you ha that has to be done. So yes, officially the RPF may no longer exist, but it will exist under a different name in a different way. And they had a basically a child's rpf the ranch as well kind of too yeah exactly you should totally speak to, there's a couple of uh, second generation scientologists who grew up on the ranch i just said that in american accent that's weird the ranch, <laughs> the ranch. The ranch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you should totally speak to a couple of other you know lara fm's a really good example she is a youtuber and second gen scientologist she grew up there and she can tell you all about it but essentially yeah it's where in the UK, there was a thing called the cadet org. If you were in this organization, you had a child, your child would be raised 
in the cadet org as a cadet, ready to join the sea organization when they're old enough. And they would be kept in, yeah, horrible conditions, separated from their family, because you as a Sea Org member have dedicated your life to Scientology, so children are a distraction. Right. Your child would be taken away from you and raised by Scientology. And the conditions in which they live is horrible. And it goes into child exploitation and labor exploitation, which have also been topics on the podcast this year as well. So yeah, I just, oh, yeah, it just, you think about it and it's just so horrific to think about that there are these camps and these holes that people who maybe just aren't even selling enough books are being thrown in. Like that's your punishment. Like you didn't sell enough books this week. Like It's just, it's absurd to me. And that, again, tax exemption. Yeah. I mean, I was under the age of 18 when I signed my SEAL contract, which is the one billion year lifetime commitment I was telling you about. And I signed that contract with FLAG, which is the headquarters over in Florida. And I was on what's called a project prepare, which is essentially like a, uh, you know, like a route. to you need to do this and this in order to arrive in the SEAL organization. And so I was on a project prepare to go arrive at FLAG. And I got kicked out before I was able to complete that project prepare. But if I had completed the project prepare, then I would have been moved from the United Kingdom to the United States to work for the church full time as a minor, which is the definition of child trafficking. You know, moving between states to work for someone for no money because you don't earn any sort of living wage at all when you volunteer for the church. So, so yeah. If I hadn't been kicked out, I would have been trafficked as a child. And I am one of many examples of that occurring and happening too. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about you getting kicked out. And at which time was this? Was this the final kick out or was this the mid kick out? <laughs> <laughs> the final time. So in a nutshell, I when I joined Scientology, there was a big event that happened. It happens every year in October called the IAS event, the International Association of Scientologists. And the night before that event, I got a phone call from someone in OSA, which is the Office of Special Affairs. They are the kind of guardians of Scientology's public image and the spy wing and the dirty tricks department. Called me up and said, Alex, you have a connection to someone who is anti-Scientology. And because of that, you aren't able to come to the event and you can't do any Scientology processing or anything until we find out who it is and how you're connected and all of that. It turns out it was like a friend of a family member who had a cousin who had a friend or something like that who was against Scientology. Never met this person, didn't know who they were, but that was enough of a connection for them to bar me from servicing. I was a teenager. I was very upset. All of the friends that I'd made and all of the people I'd spent every single day working with in the church that were all around the same age as me were suddenly not able to talk to me. And so you lose all of your friends overnight. And I'd gone through this process of kind of thinking Scientology is my purpose in life. This is what I'm doing with my life. This is why I'm here, because I'm achieving things. I'm doing great things. I'm happy. I'm enjoying this. And then suddenly overnight, I guess, ripped away from you. It's a very traumatic, horrible thing to go through as a teenager. A year or so later, I then get picked up by FLAG on a recovery cycle i was telling you about these earlier oh wow someone called me up to say hey we haven't seen you in scientology for a while why is it what happened i explained over the phone exactly what happened and then was recovered i did what's called a board of review where they investigate they look into it and they basically write this report that just said 
yeah, Alex shouldn't have been kicked out. It was stupid of us for us to kick him out when it's such a distant connection. It was a right to remove him from the group temporarily while we find out what the problem actually is. But there was no follow-up investigation and we shouldn't have kicked you out. So welcome back. I was then recruited back onto staff and I was like really upset. I was like, cool, look, you admitted that you shouldn't have done it, but I still lost all my friends and my purpose in life. and I'm still upset about it. Thank you for welcoming me back, but I'm still upset and traumatized. So I went into a very specific type of auditing called an ARC break session, which essentially is meant to handle upsets. And essentially, I it didn't help. It made me feel worse and I was even more upset. And I basically kicked up a fuss and I said, look, auditing is meant to help people. It's meant to make you feel better. And this isn't helping me right now. And I remember specifically saying, I want Scientology to help me. I spend my life getting people into Scientology because I believe it helps people. I've seen it help people. Right now, it's not helping me. And I was pleading. All I want is for it to help me right now. And I think it's not been done right or something's gone wrong here because it's actually made me more upset than happy. They took that to mean I was saying that Scientology doesn't work on anybody and it's a waste of time and a waste of money. And there's the door. Goodbye. That was after I was forced to write up all my wrongs against the church. I was locked in a room and told you can't leave until you confess to what you've done wrong. And as soon as they did that, I was moved off staff. So I was really upset about all of this. And that's why I got kicked out. And yeah, it took me a long time. I still considered myself a Scientologist for several years afterwards. And I kind of thought, well, look, something wrong's happened here. I don't think Scientology doesn't work. I just think it's been applied incorrectly or whatever. So I still continued studying Scientology from home and just trying to think, okay, maybe when enough time's gone by, I'll, you know, reapproach it and figure out what's gone on. But not being in the church every single day, you kind of drift away and you're not constantly being bombarded with recruitment and, you know, all of this stuff. So drifted away and then kind of stopped. I think the last Scientology service I did was 2016 or 2018, something like that. And it wasn't until about a year ago that I realized it was still impacting the way that I think because I was I went to I was going to therapy for something completely unrelated and my therapist was like, look, you're struggling to feel emotions here in the room. And we unpacked it and discovered the reason why is because Scientology doesn't make you suppress emotions. It kind of disconnects you so you don't even realize you're having an emotion, let alone recognize it and suppress it down. And that's the point where I started thinking, hold on, I haven't done any Scientology for six years and it's still affecting me and it turns out yeah it actually changes the way you think and process information and that's when I started my recovery process about a year ago and every single day I talk to people about it the more I learn about what happened to me the more I realize how deep it really goes in your mind wow that's really just incredible it's very interesting to me that you came back because they were like, hey, we haven't seen you in a while. And you're like, yeah, you kicked me out. And they're like, oh, we didn't mean to do that. You can come back now. It's fine. We checked it out and you're good. Just it's like they truly don't care. They really, truly just don't care at all. Yeah. The answer they give you is Scientology is 100% true and correct and works 100% of the time. So if it hasn't worked, that's because someone has not done it properly. So if you fully believe Scientology works and it helps people, 
then you will come back because you'll accept that it's not Scientology has upset you. It's that someone has done it wrong. So therefore, come back in, give us a chance, and we'll make sure Scientology is done correctly this time. Wow. I have a question <laughs> about the moral injury of being a bookseller in Scientology. And I think a lot of times those of us in MLMs or other you know, high demand groups will come to a point where we sort of see it. We sort of go, uh-oh, it's something that sticks with you, right? There was one experience maybe that selling books stuck with you. And I, I want to know if you have one of those, what it is, like if you could tell us. I don't know. I, it's like a weird, I don't know how yeah. I worded that. It's kind of strange, but I'm very curious about the moral injury that you faced while recruiting and selling books for Scientology. Maybe that's a little better. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. And it's you don't realize the manipulation you are responsible for and you are engaging in when you're doing it right i told you earlier about having to invade someone's privacy to sell a book well it wasn't a policy it's just a saying that we had in london org which was crying is buying if i can get the person in front of me to cry then they're gonna buy the book because i've managed to get them to open up about their deepest darkest secrets their ruin whatever it is that they want to change in their life. And if I've got them to cry, then that means I can sell them the book as a solution to that problem. And you don't realize when you're doing that, that's a horrible thing to do to a person. That's not nice. Because when you're doing it, you think I'm helping this person, right? You don't realize that until after you leave. And for me, the moment I realized it was still affecting me was I was with a friend having it this was only about a year ago had a, a disagreement with my friend and i was sat there listening to him and then i realized in the moment that instead of listening to what he was saying and processing that engaging in what he had the disagreement about i was thinking how do i get this person to not be angry or upset anymore i wanted to change his place on what was called the emotional tone scale which is like a chart of emotions i was trying to change manipulate his emotions so that he wasn't upset and angry anymore so that we could then rationally talk about whatever the problem was at that point i realized i'm not listening to what he's saying i'm trying to manipulate his emotions because scientology has taught me that you can't rationally think when there's emotions involved because that's what scientologists believe and even though I wasn't a Scientologist and I hadn't set foot in the Church of Scientology for a very long time, I was still applying it subconsciously. I was trying to get this guy to behave in a different way, to display a different level of emotions so that we could then talk about the problem. And I was manipulating him and that was a horrible thing. And I realized in the moment that's how deep Scientology runs that I was still subconsciously doing something Scientology taught me to do. Wow. So that's when I started going down the rabbit hole and looking at how it really does affect people, how it affected me. And, you know, I came to this point and you do have to take ownership for it. You know, I was responsible for getting a lot of people into Scientology. I generated the largest number of book sales London had seen in two years. You know, I was great at my job, but that means there are undoubtedly people who are currently in Scientology that wouldn't have been in Scientology if it wasn't for me selling them a book. So you have to come to terms with that and you think, well, look, I helped people get in. Well, now I want to help people get out, right? And 
that's why I started sharing my story and talking about my journey and my experiences and why I started a YouTube channel because I want to give people a platform to talk about their experiences and you know things like the Aftermath Foundation help if you are currently in Scientology you want to leave or escape the Aftermath Foundation will help you do that and make sure you land on your feet Um, and I'm currently working on a project called Cause Over Life which will be a non-profit organization I'm establishing that's going to essentially provide resources and a helping hand to people wherever you're at in your recovery process from Scientology and the idea is that it can put you in touch with a fellow former member you know sometimes you just need to speak to someone else who's been through something similar right absolutely and we can help link people up through that or maybe suggest some books to read or some online resources you know mental health guides for example so i'm working on that project and that's the kind of thing that allows me to sleep at night is knowing that yeah, I helped a lot of people get in, but now I'm actively trying to help people get out and recover from this thing. That makes me feel like so warm and fuzzy. I love that. I love that you are taking the bad and reverse engineering it and making it the good. I love it. Where can everybody find you on the internet? So my name is Apostate Alex. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. I am on Instagram, but I don't really post there so much. But if you just search me or go to apostatealex.com, you'll find all my links and Cause Over Life, the project I was just talking about is causeoverlife.org. I love that. Let's do some, at the end, I do like rapid fire questions about, well, we're going to talk about Scientology, but are you ready? Go for it. So what is one word that encompasses how you feel about Scientology? Oh, <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. What was one word that make, what how I feel about Scientology now? Yeah. Offended. I'll take it. What is a warning to somebody who's listening to this and is still thinking about taking one of those acting classes or a personality test or something like that? Just constantly ask yourself how you feel, how you think, right? And what do you think about this? Because in Scientology, they very much try and focus on this is the only answer or this is the only way to find out this information. If you notice any sort of forms of control like that, of like, well, this is the only place to find the solution, or this is the best way to become an actor, you know, maybe that's something that might be a red flag. So just if you're in a situation where your free thinking and your own critical studies is being suppressed in any way, that's something to look out for. Without re-triggering yourself too much, what is your worst memory from Scientology? Being locked in a room and being told that I can't leave without writing up my wrongdoings against the church. What is the hardest lesson that you learned about yourself while you were in Scientology? That I put other people first and quite often to my own detriment. And I think that it's a good thing to think about others, but sometimes you have to think about yourself as well. And that was the hardest lesson was I was so prepared to help other people through what I thought was the best way to do that, that I was prepared to sacrifice my own boundaries and my own, you know, rights in order to do that. And lastly, let's end on a positive. Give me something positive about your time or even the aftermath of your time in Scientology. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be here doing what I do if it wasn't for Scientology, right? Yeah, it was a horrible experience, but I currently have more subscribers on YouTube 
than Scientology has members in the United Kingdom. I'm helping people get out of Scientology. I'm helping people recover. I'm meeting new people across the world. I have made so many friends and new connections with people. And Scientology make you think that the world outside is this scary, horrible place full of suppressive people who just want to mess up your life and get in the way of your success. And in actual fact, all of the SPs I've ever met um, actually just want to help you and encourage you and we're all here together as a community. So in a really weird way, I wanted to find myself and a sense of belonging when I joined Scientology. And actually, I found it in the anti-Scientology world because I've realized that this is my community. This is where I belong. And this is how I help people is by helping them recover from Scientology. I love it. This was such a wonderful chat. Thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining. I mean, I've been thinking about this whole MLM book selling Scientology thing for a while. So thank you for coming and breaking it down and helping me explain it a lot better. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Hans.